Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday the 25th of March. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us talk about the perils of ordering food overseas and what can go wrong. And we also had a lovely chat with Con Karapanagiotidis from the ASRC talking all about the feast for freedom. I got a new mattress, which was exciting, but when it arrived, there was something missing. Uh, Dr. Jen explained why we all need to take off our shoes when we get home. And lanyards, do you keep them or throw them away after you've used them? Sarah Krasnerstein joined us to chat about a new quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. And Geraldine Hickey mm-hmm. came back on the show. Uh, she's got a new <laughs> Melbourne International Comedy Festival show. Now I've got a boat. Triple R. Remember when you can go to a fast food place? Just go to the counter and just order a meal and they were like, yep, here it is. You don't mm-hmm. get to choose Anything else? It's it's you get this drink, this burger, and these chips. Oh yeah, like a combo. And, yeah, and it's like there you go. And that was it. You just order a point at whatever you wanted. Um, I went recently to a place to order a meal, and I find sometimes I get a little bit overwhelmed with the options. Mm. I'm like, I just want this meal. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, fine. Just the simple things though. It's like, you know, what size, what drink, what bun, what sauce? Would you like to do- donate $2.50 to this charity? It's like, what, uh. what, what is, just just give me that picture. That is all <laughs> I want. That's all. All that one. And I do, like, I do sometimes get, I'm just like, well, what, what is the regular sauce that comes with this thing? Just give me whatever mm. is in it. Um, I mean, it's, it's not a... And I guess for me, it's I don't have any food allergies or big dietary requirements or anything, so I can have whatever. So it's great that they're catering for other people. But also, if you did have those allergies or you know dietary requirements, mm. you would know and you would specify. Uh, yes. You wouldn't expect them to go. Oh, but are you celiac? You actually, you know what I am. Actually, I'm and glad I you wouldn't. mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't eat here now. Um, <laughs> I was in America years ago and I remember going to this fast food place and I was with a couple of mates and the menu, we it, it was a chicken fast food place, but all of the, it, it wasn't something that we have in Australia, so we didn't know the names. They had different names for things. Mm. Um, and we're like, what is just, like, can we just get, they didn't have um, burgers at this place. We wanted chicken, just chicken nuggets or whatever. Yeah. Um, but they didn't have chicken nuggets on the menu. The lady was a bit confused. We were It was down south in America and I, they found it very hard to understand our English a yeah. lot of the time. Um, and we got to the place. Uh, it was quite busy and I asked – it was the other way around. I was asking her questions mm. uh, and she was getting frustrated because I didn't know what things were. I had two mates with me. They were not helpful at all. Great. And I'm like, um, do, just chicken nuggets? And she just looked at me like, chicken what? I go, uh-huh. chicken nuggets? She's like, and I'm like, are they? And I was trying to look at the pictures. I'm like. Uh, uh, chicken medallions? Yes. <laughs> I go, um, can I just get some uh, is biscuits? And because it was a photo of a biscuit and it looked like a oh, chicken nugget, no. but a biscuit is a scone, scone like a bread scone. Mm. And then she's like, yeah, how many? I go, um, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> no, they're so big. <laughs> And because there were three of us, we're like, let's just get something and get the hell out of here. We just wanted something to eat before we went out. And I go, 20. (laughs) And she looks at me and goes, excuse me. (laughs) I go, 20? And she goes, all right. (laughs) Do you want, she asked if we wanted gravy. I go, with the biscuits? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, "Uh, uh, I guess... 
can we get some chips? And she's like, I just want my 20 scones. (laughs) (laughs) And people behind us are getting annoyed. And then people, and I'm just like, I look for my mates that left me. I'm like, give me my 20 biscuits and gravy. I asked for for chips and she said, we don't sell chips. I was like, what do you mean you don't sell chips? Fries. And I'm like. Bobby, that's a bit rookie of you, to be honest. It was so stupid of me. (laughs) And I go, just give me the 20 biscuits and the gravy and that's it. Anyway, so I paid for them and then I opened the box and we just went, what the hell? So we had bread for dinner that night with some gravy. I'm just so confused. Like, you're you're not. You're not in like Uzbekistan, like you're in America. I know. I I couldn't believe how hard it was to communicate. I mean, she probably could have helped you out. Absolutely. Should have said, "You sure you want biscuits?" It's usually a sign. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I uh, I stuffed. uh, Look, I stuffed that order up, but I got overwhelmed, and and that's the thing. I do get overwhelmed sometimes with just so many different options. My um partner tells this story for her when he was in China years ago and um, went with a friend to a dumpling place in Shanghai and was like, oh, this is the, you know, all the locals got their huge queue. All right, well, you line up and all they just do this one type of dumpling, that's it. You line up and you get it. And obviously, not obviously, but no, obviously speaks no Chinese and <laughs> his friend didn't either. Um, and so they, he was like, well, luckily they just do one thing. I got, it finally got to the front of the queue and just kind of put his hand up with five. Like, I'll have five. And they said, and then people, people kind of started looking around and being like, this guy's getting five. I imagine what they were saying. Um, and he's like, yeah, just five. They're like, five? And there's a back and forth. And he's like, yes, I want five. We want five dumplings or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, they all started laughing. <laughs> and turns out that, um, and because it was so cheap as well, mm. he's like, well, that, that'll be right. And then they went off and they're like, okay. And then, you know, that'll be, I don't know, like 10 cents or something. <laughs> Went and waited and then they called his order out and everyone started kind of giggling and he went to pick it up. And I think in one serve there were 10 dumplings. Oh, so he ordered 50. 50 dumplings. <laughs> oh. But he was on like a – he was there on like a uni kind of study trip. Yeah. So he said he took all the dumplings back to their dorm and was the most popular oh. person around. Okay. Well, he's turned that into a positive, hasn't he? <laughs> it's like these, all these Barry McKenzie's, you bloody flaming galahs. You actually know what I'm saying? <laughs> But is there is there with the biscuits? I mean, that is a that's a bad word. It's a, yeah. It's it's well. It's incorrect. It's an incorrect incorrect usage of the word biscuit. That's their fault. It is their fault. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty stupid as well. It looked like a chicken nugget in the photo. It was a terrible. You do want to say yeah? I just there's so many things, Bobby. Like I you didn't, you didn't say quest- chicken, like chicken pieces. Well, we d- chicken was, tenders. I, I did try to communicate, but every time I ask her a question, it was like. How stupid are you? Yeah. Was the look that I got yeah. like, are you an idiot? And we have people waiting. Uh, so I was just you like, panicked. I absolutely I, panicked. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. Yeah. Absolutely panicked. I, normally in that situation, I use an American accent. Or... I, I use an American accent to say my name when I was in the States. Because oh. you say Monique. Mm. And they would go, Renee. And I'd say, yeah. no, no. Mon-. Then I'd say, oh, um, Monique. Monique. And then they go, oh. Oh. <laughs> Every I had to do it. My sister would watch me do it because we were there together, and was just like, "Go on, do the say it in the voice." Do it no. in the voice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking with Monique. By the way, we have been ordering for ninety scones for Monique. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. 
Kon Karapanajutidis is founder and CEO of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, the largest independent human rights organisation in the country. The, the ASRC's initiative, Feast for Freedom, is a shared food experience native people seeking asylum and runs this weekend. And to tell us about it, the lawyer, social worker, teacher, masseur, philanthropist and author joins us now. Con, welcome back to Breakfast. Masseur? Oh God, you sound like my mother. <laughs> yeah, I'm a qualified massage therapist. I... I became one to run um, free massage clinics for homeless men. Oh. So I did that for about four or five years, yeah. I never knew that little feather in the cap. Wow. <laughs> um, we all have our stories over the last two years. What's been yours at, at your coalface? The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre over the last two years, it's been, we're just talking off air about what a tough time it's been. We've kept our doors open the last two years and we've been, our stories too, one, the resilience and courage of people seeking asylum and refugees to survive this pandemic when the federal government left them with nothing, no job keeper, no job seeker, no support. Two, we've been overwhelmed by the kindness and compassion of everyday Australians who have rallied and supported us. While we've kept our doors open, the reality is most charities shut the last two years. We were physically open and it was really the critical thing around life and death for people. So it's been a tough two years, but we feel really proud of what we've done and we feel really grateful for the support of the community. Yeah. And unbelievably, now that that chapter is, the, the worst is over for that. Let's now, hope so. Now we have the war in Ukraine. What What is the war in Ukraine? What, what light has that shed on your role in Australia? Yeah. We've been busily supporting uh, refugees from the Ukraine, delivering food parcels, helping with lobbying and advocacy, putting the pressure on the government as they finally acted. Only a paltry, remember, only a paltry 4,000 places so far mm. and only temporary humanitarian visas, not permanent ones. But it's also exposed the ugliness and racism of the way in which we treat refugees. Because I've also been busily working with a community from Afghanistan who for seven months have been asking for the same thing and have got zero extra refugee places, zero permanent protection for the 5,000 people already accepted as refugees here in Australia from Afghanistan mm. and to watch them hear the Prime Minister go, there's plenty of room in mm. our immigration program, we're going to move as quickly as possible, we're going to welcome these people. That's exactly how a Prime Minister should always talk. Mm. But what's the difference? And the difference is when it comes to people of colour, when it comes to black and brown refugees or Muslim refugees, suddenly we stop seeing a person. We see the racism and fear that we've been fed for 25 years in this country. And what I hope comes out of what the response to Ukraine has been is, look what happens when we take away the racism and politicization of refugees and we just see people. Mm. People in need of protection, people deserving sanctuary and welcome. Because once upon a time, unless you're indigenous to this nation, you are the descendants of refugees or immigrants yourself that cross sea and border, coming here seeking safety or a better life. Mm. And you were welcomed or you found a way to you know, to survive all of that and help make this country the incredible country that it is. Yeah. yeah. Australian troops only recently left Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, is it as simple as diagnosis? I mean, your experience yeah. and knowledge surpasses everyone else's, but is it that simple? You know, I wish it was more complex than the fact that it's just racism, but it's actually not. Because you think about our relationship, the, the, the Afghan people have almost two century relationship to this country to begin with. Mm. We spent the last 20 years in that country telling people, stand up to the Taliban, women stand up for human rights, stand up for democracy. And then we abandoned them. Now you've got, remember, girls have not gone to school for the last seven months. Women are at the point where they're selling their own babies to survive. It's one of the largest along with Yemen mm. and Myanmar. Um, one of the largest humanitarian catastrophes happening right now, and yet what do we have? 
we have zero, I mean, zero extra places, zero family reunion, zero fast tracking, the very opposite of what people from Ukraine are getting. And what they're getting is what everyone should get. Mm. But again, please remember, the government's done almost nothing for the people of Ukraine. And up until them being shamed to do something better, we spent the last couple of weeks busily helping with food, with other charities, aid where people will fling a war zone coming here going, am I going to be destitute? Mm. So why aren't we providing the same compassion to the people of Afghanistan? And why aren't we taking many more refugees? It's not about money. We're spending billions of dollars to still lock up uh, 100 refugees on the roof, 51 men for nine years here in the Park Hotel prison and in other places. It's costing us billions of dollars to break people. Why aren't we spending those billions of dollars to save people? Yeah. yeah. Is the cruelty the point? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Because for 25 years, it has been a vote winner, pandered to the worst in people and pandered to fear. And you poison the heart paralyze the imagination and you capture votes yeah. and it's worked but i also believe after 20 years of doing this work that people are fed up not everyone but more and more people are like i'm sick of this cruelty it shames me we have to do better we must do better and if you see the outpouring of community support for what's happening to refugees fleeing ukraine hopefully this is a, a line in a sand moment where people go we must be better yeah we have to be better well how can we help and be better this weekend yeah so we've got feast for freedom and it's actually not about food i'll tell you about the event quickly it is uh, refugees who have kindly donated recipes to us and um, what we're asking people to do is host a feast and that can be in your backyard in your workplace in your local park Use the recipes gifted. You don't have to be a master chef. You just need a big heart and the desire to help refugees. You invite your mates over for a feed and they chip in what they can. And if you can't do it this weekend and you're like, oh, I'm still worried about the number of cases out there like we all are, you can do it in a month from now. You can do it from six months from now. But you could register your feast now at feastforfreedom.org.au. Mm -hmm. Look, yeah, we're trying to critically raise a million dollars because as we head towards winter, we're going to be that supermarket, that pharmacy, that roof over their head for thousands of refugees like we've been throughout this pandemic. But at the same time, what we'd love is to bring people together to celebrate what unites us. And the power of food is actually about, a, it, it opens up a door to our culture and our stories. Mm. You know, this is why we have lunches at the ACC. You sit down with people from 60 different nations mm. and all you see is humanity and each other. And food has this powerful gift in bringing us together to celebrate what unites us. And at a time like now, we are so desperate for connection and community and belonging. What we're asking people to do is come together to do good, to raise critical funds to make sure refugees that go hungry and cold this winter, mm -hmm. despite all the resilience and courage they've been abandoned by this federal government of ours. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, let's come together and celebrate our common ground and our immigration and multicultural and refugee story. Mm. ASRC also has a catering service. Can you tell us a bit we about do. that? We do. We've been running it for 15 years. It's a vegan and vegetarian catering service, and it, whether it's a wedding, whether it's a conference, whether it's your 21st, uh, we employ dozens and dozens of refugees, both in our catering and our cleaning social enterprise. Um, and what it is for so many people, it's just that first job, that first opportunity, that first thing they can put on their resume for Australia. It's a stepping stone. But through the pandemic, we've been employing 70 people seeking asylum in our social enterprises. And throughout it, we cut no one's job, we cut no one's hours, even when COVID decimated it. Because for us, it's actually about going... We want to give an experience that shows this is how Australia should treat you with dignity and rights and fairness. So if you're looking for a great cleaner, domestic, mm -hmm. or an end of year, end of lease clean, or if you're looking for great catering, um, go to our website and check us out. But it's beautiful food and it's amazing cleaning, 
and it's creating work for over 70 people seeking asylum right now. Mm. You've got a food... Oh, sorry. No. You've got a food bank there as well. How important are donations that come through for oh, that? Oh, it's so critical. You think about the worst. It feels like a, a, a minute, doesn't it, around when people were stockpiling. And we were sitting there going, my God, we've got 400 families we need to provide toilet paper to. Where are we going to find it? We've got 400 families that need rice this week or, you know, a tin of tomatoes. Right now, we're delivering till June 30th, straight with the support of Fruit to Work, who are our partner here, 400 families of Fortnite are getting food straight to the doorstep because almost all the people we, we work with because of the destitution they're forced into rely on public transport. So we've been delivering to people's doors safely for almost the majority of this pandemic. We had just passed 60,000 food parcels since COVID began, 60,000. So without those donations of food, and right now we, we're always in need of food, always in need of food. We provide a culturally appropriate, inclusive, safe space that allows people the dignity of actually getting what they need culturally. It's so critical. And again, this is the point of getting behind places like us. You know, after 20 years, I wish we weren't here. Mm. I wish I was talking about us closing our doors, which is my dream, which means people come seeking asylum and have the right to work, healthcare, Medicare. 94% of the people we feed have no right to work. The majority have no Medicare. And remember, none have access to government-supported income support. Mm. There's, there's, no, there's no new start. There's no nothing. So they are left to perish, these incredibly resilient, resourceful people. And so what we are is that, that home of welcome, that space that says you're welcomed here, we see you, you have rights, and let's get, help you get on your, your own two feet. Because what do people want to do? They want safety, and then they want to give back. But we've got a government that's trying to do everything it can to turn us against the heroes of the story, which are the refugees. Would any of you think, put it this way quickly, imagine if... Ukrainian refugees, the only way they could get out is to get on a boat. How would you feel about us locking them up on Manus Island and Nauru or leaving them in detention centres? Well, everyone else locked up right now is a victim of war. So when we think about this and going, does anyone here think Putin's the hero of this story? Or and the people of Ukraine are the villains? So why are we treating the people of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, people we're locking up right now as the villains of this story? And that comes down to racism fear and hate mm. and the only way we're going to conquer it with an election coming up i ask everyone we're putting out a scorecard soon telling you where every party stands on the issues that are important to refugees please vote with your values please vote for candidates that actually stand for compassionate and humane treatment of refugees stop putting the wrong people into power mm. Mm. well in the meantime there's feast for freedom .org.au is where you go for information. You mentioned the centrality of food, and I don't mean to reduce any culture to a cuisine, but in your 20 years in this role, as you describe yourself as an amateur chef, have you, like, seriously improved? Yeah, I, for me, cooking... For me, cooking as a young boy, it was the one way I used to ever connect to my late father. He used to love to cook. And as, a, as, a, as an adult, it's been my way of building real closeness with my mum. You know, mm. like, it, as, as men, we're often, in any culture... We're often disconnected from our own intimacy and vulnerability and things are so gendered and, we're, and we miss all these amazing opportunities to connect to women in our lives. And I found food as this really precious gift that's allowed me to be so close to the women in my life, so close to a sense of my own vulnerabilities and, and masculinity in a positive way instead of a harmful way. And I've also found it as a beautiful way of bringing people together at the ACC. Mm. I've cooked, God knows, hundreds of dinners over the years to keep the ACC going and to welcome people into the organisation. I find food is this really safe and beautiful way to bring people together to see each other and to celebrate. And that's what, and that's what this weekend's about as well. And so for me, cooking comes from a place of, of deep love and deep pride in my own um, Greek culture. 
Um, and I think it's something that everyone's precious about it because it tells our story, our journeys, our struggle, mm. and ultimately our survival. Yeah. That we have survived and that we are here and we are valuable and we all matter. And that's the story about peaceful freedom. It's about saying everyone actually matters. Refugees should be welcomed and let's celebrate the courage and resilience and resourcefulness of refugees and all they're asking for is safety and an opportunity in this country. And why will this why does the Morrison government refuse to give that to refugees? And it's about nothing but they see votes in fear and hate and we need to say enough of this and we've had enough. Yeah. Well you can vote and you can help, uh, particularly this weekend. Feastforfreedom.org.au is where all the information is about this fantastic initiative. And we've been speaking with Con from the ASRC. Thank Thanks you so much. so much for having me. And thank you to Triple R and to Breakfasters who have been a champion of our organization for almost twenty years exactly. Triple mm-hmm. R's been incredible, one of the first radio stations, along with the beautiful three C R that supported us when no one else was giving us a platform. I'm talking from 2002, Triple R's been on board. Uh, we started just a year before that. So just a big call out and thank you to the incredible crews. And every time I come to breakfast, no matter who the new team is, you're always so beautiful and welcoming. <laughs> so thank you, it's been a pleasure. And thank you to Triple R. And make sure when Triple R's Telethon um, comes around, it's Radiothon comes around, make sure to subscribe as well. Thanks, Con. It's always our privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much. Melbourne's own Triple R. Bought a new mattress over the weekend, got Whoa, delivered yesterday. Oh, huge. It is huge. I haven't bought a new mattress in over seven years. It, it, I, but honestly, like the mattress that we were on was just like the worst. Mm-hmm. It was just getting worse and worse. It was just mm-hmm. like, God, did I have a bad bad sleep? Like every day for the last month, it just my back was getting sore. I was like, maybe I'm sleeping too much. It's like, no, I'm absolutely not sleeping mm. too much. Uh, so, oh, geez, I tell you what, it was bloody heaven last night. Um, but we now I haven't spent this much on a mattress before but we got a massive discount we got like a 60 percent discount which was a couple of grand this was a display model that we got uh-huh, so that i write <laughs> so that's what i was gonna say i have bought display models of things before but never something so personal mm. i guess um now they do have well, what it's not corrupt i mean people aren't in the store like rubbing their bare ass oh that. that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if it was that gross, I wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not gross enough for us not to buy it. No, exactly. It's no, totally it's fine. Not gross. And they have it's things fine. that your feet are on and that your heads are on and everything. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so it was all fine. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, we were like, oh, I, I did ask him. I was like, how long has this been on display? And he said six. I go, months? He said, yes. I go, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, then. Um, anyway, right, so we, um, we're... we're on the bed and got the sales guy and he uh first question he asked us he was like uh do you need a base or what are you putting the bed on he said we've got a bed frame he's like okay no worries anyway talks us through this that and then uh there's a remote to the bed oh my god it's one of them right Mm. so um abby's like what does this do and he goes let me show you so for the next 10 minutes Mm -hmm. this sales guy is showing us Everything that you do with the remote. Is he on the bed? He's not on the bed. He's just standing over it watching us on the bed. (laughs) Cool, yeah. Do you dim Uh, dim the light? (laughs) Does it vibrate or what? Yes. So one of the things it does is vibrate. Another thing it does is like it puts your your head up so so you can read a book in bed kind of a thing. But he also did this thing where you put your feet up and your head so you're like in a hammock and he's just like and it's like – 
there's just absolutely no pressure on your back and he put you in that position for a while and then he puts it back down and it really stretches out your back. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Anyway, we looked at a few different places um, and we were tossing between that one and another bed and we went, oh, I mean, we, we really like the one, this one. We're like, I mean, the remote is a bonus. We're probably never going to use it, to be mm. honest. But hey, every now and then, mm. maybe once, if we want to read a book at the same time, <laughs> we can... We can use a remote. But do the sides move individually? No, oh. no. It's just, uh, it's just the one thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we get the bed and pull it out, pop it on the thing, and there's no remote. I was oh. like, "There's no remote." Abby goes, "You know what? I betcha the remote doesn't come with it." Like he absolutely sold us. Give us, gave us ten minute demonstration. So I called up and I was like, "Excuse me, uh, yeah, we." Got our bed, but we didn't get the remote. She's like, I'll just transfer you through to bedding. Mm. <laughs> so she transfers me through and I speak to the guy who sold it to us. He's like, oh, yeah, no, so the, the remote doesn't come with the bed. It comes with uh, with the base. I was like, oh, we told you we weren't getting the base. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I said that. I'm like, obviously mm. that wasn't clear. He goes, oh, look, you're not the only person that thought this. Lots of people think it. I'm like, uh-huh. well, maybe you should well, change maybe it. maybe you should change <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, and, and and he goes, oh no no. I said, I go, I, I think you need to make it more clear. Like, I mean, you've sold it now, so good on you. Mm. Um, and yeah, he he just stood by. He's like, no no no, and kept going back to you know, oh, everyone thinks this. I'm like, well, change yeah. your bloody. Um, so what do you have to do now? Do you have to? Are you going to well, get the remote, or you just have well, to vibrate on your own? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we're going to have to vibrate on our own. But we were really annoyed at this guy. We're like, no, it's, I mean, we probably would have bought it anyway, but how dare you give us a 10-minute demonstration? Yeah, totally. Um, so it's unethical. It I is. I expect better from my mattress. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after you've rubbed your bare ass all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, we thought we'd put a complaint in. Yeah. Uh, so do an great, online, great, online great. complaint. And then straight away, Abby gets a call from the store manager of that place. We thought it would go to something higher up. Now, just say the, the sales guy's name is Barry, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Store manager calls Abby and says, oh, g'day, just uh, got a complaint with you about Bazaar. Right? We're like, oh, here we go. He's mates with yeah. these guys. He goes, look, I've just had a chat with Baz and he tells a different story. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. It was, it was, Anyway, I um, yeah, I, I didn't want to be on the receiving end of Abby and yeah. this conversation. Um, so just also quickly, these beds. Are you ever afraid that you'll get uh, electrocuted? A electrocuted. <laughs> B folded up like <laughs> squashed. Yeah, squashed. In the middle like of the clam. night. <laughs> yeah. Winnie jumps on the remote. The neighbours will find you. Yeah, that's what I've been worried yeah, about. That's, oh. yeah. Well, thankfully, we it's only in the base. It's got the electronics. So there's all... Oh. So the mattress itself has nothing. No, it's just the base that we didn't purchase. That's why we didn't get the remote. I thought there were the electronics in there, but you couldn't use them because exactly. you had no remote. No, no, sorry. No, it was it was all in the base, which was <laughs> the mattress was on. So when we were sitting on it, we thought it was the mattress. Of course. Apparently it wasn't. And I'd always be... Scared of like wetting the bed or something and electrocuting oh, so myself. That's, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. It must happen. Yeah, yeah. to oh, other absolutely. people. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. So yeah. this is, uh, is it resolved? Well, <laughs> he said, if you want to return it, we'll get people to come and pick it up. And she's like, well, I'll talk to my wife and we'll lay on the bed. It's like, God, this is the best bed we've ever had. We're not oh. returning it. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Is it, is it, uh, <laughs> and don't, I don't want, uh, is it a, a bogan thing to get a tricked up mattress, like I, I don't know, kind of like getting like like um, 
those chairs like well, chairs Recliners. that recline and have cup holders and all that kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, Which yeah. are never look good, but God, they're always so comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like, were you worried about, like, what are we what are we becoming? Our mattress is more advanced than we are. I did. I did at first. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of a relief that it doesn't work, to be honest with you. Well, so where, where are we at? So Baz... Baz knows he's done wrong. Yeah, but you never dogged the boys. <laughs> yes, completely. <laughs> I never dogged the boys. Classic mattress law. We all know that. So, did they fear? Did they put like the fear, the fear of fear into you? Like, how did? It, yeah, how did it resolve? Well, they just said, if you want to return it, let us know, and we'll just come and pick it up and give you a full refund. Right. Oh, but then it was too comfy. Exactly. I mean, that's what the they're banking on. Had, so oh, like... Baz, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> you very yeah, comfortably. <laughs> Triple R. Dr. Jen has stepped into breakfasts to give us a dose of weird science. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Daniel. I have indeed stepped in with my shoes. Mm. Boom, boom. (laughs) (laughs) What are we driving at? I'm so intrigued by this. Okay, well, I I want to start back a few years ago now, just just a couple of years. So when I was 16, I spent a year uh, as an exchange student in Germany and there were lots of things that struck me as different, me being an innocent little pigtailed 16-year-old. No, I'm sure I didn't have pigtails, but anyway... (laughs) So, you know, discovering that it was legal for 16-year-olds to drink beer in Mm. southern Germany, that was pretty good. But one of the other things that I noticed really quickly was this concept of Hausschuhe, which, as you can hear, is German for house shoes. And it was the first time I came across Birkenstocks. I'd never seen Birkenstocks before. But so the idea is you arrive home, you leave your normal shoes at the door or just inside the door, and then you put your Birkies on in the house. And these Birkies don't get worn elsewhere. They're just your house shoes. And so now, of course, I know that this is quite an important tradition in many parts of the world. And, you know, obviously it's a cultural thing. It's a sign of showing respect, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to admit, I never really thought about whether there was any good science behind Mm. this idea of leaving your outside shoes Mm. outside. So so I need to interrogate you guys. Are we, are we, do we own house shoes? Do we have slippers? Do we put uggies on? Are we barefooters? Or do we just leave our outside shoes on in the house? I never wear shoes inside. Um, Always leave them at the door, but I don't, I don't generally put slippers on unless it's cold. I'm generally just going around in bare feet or socks sometimes. Mm. I live in an apartment, so I don't leave my shoes outside. Um, But, yeah, I take my shoes off as well when I go inside. Well, of course, you clomp and you're downstairs. Neighbour hates it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I don't like like being a guest and being told, I mean, I'll do it. No, I never ask guests to do it. Mm. Mm. But if they say, should I take my shoes off? Because it's an imposition. Yeah, it's a bit like take off your shirt, you know. (laughs) And getting you gym jams. Make yourself comfortable. No, I just feel like, you know, there might be sock pressure. What if they're not wearing their best socks? Or what if they've got smelly feet? All that kind of thing. So I feel like if you want to take your shoes off, do it. But um, you don't have to. But I would actually prefer that they did. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Daniel, Daniel, what's your habit? Oh, I'd take them off when asked. But, uh, you know, I've got – I was done. I think broadcasting from home, Ugg boots, I'm done with them. Oh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they're tainted. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I, I was thinking about it because I think it's interesting in the context of COVID because remember, especially in the early earlier days of the pandemic when there was a lot more focus on surface transmission. Um, and so, you know, people were wearing gloves at the supermarket. Obviously, there's still a lot of focus on hand sanitizer. There was a suggestion that maybe we should even wash our groceries when they come into mm. the house yes. in case they're infected. But then, you know, how many of us actually do think about the soles of our shoes, which arguably are the dirtiest things we bring into our homes? And in Australia, there isn't a strong habit for people to take their shoes off at the door. Um, you know, some people do. And I personally, I just like to be barefoot. It's not so much because mm. I'm thinking about leaving dirty shoes outside. I just love not wearing shoes. Yeah, but same. anyway, so I knew there'd been studies of shoes in healthcare settings and among food workers. And those studies definitely found out that shoes can pick up and carry nasty infectious diseases um, and that research showed that effectively decontaminating shoes can be really hard because think about all the kind of nooks and crannies and the different sort of textures you know is it a sneaker is it leather whatever but I sort of hadn't thought that much about shoes for those of us who don't work in these potentially more hazardous environments obviously you know if you step in dog poo you're going to clean your shoes but just every day you're going to clean your shoes but this week I found an article written by two environmental chemists. One of them is the chief environmental scientist at the EPA Victoria uh, here in Melbourne, Mark Patrick Taylor. And these researchers are interested in indoor environments, particularly our houses and the contaminants that we get exposed to at home. So they've got this big study investigating house dust all around the world. Who knew house dust <laughs> could be so interesting? Imagine that you're vacuuming and a scientist says, don't put it in the bin, send it to me. I want to see what's in your house dust. That's why I don't vacuum. I'm just yeah. waiting for the yeah, tap the on science. the shelf. <laughs> oh, just in case someone could tell you that your house is full of horrible things, Daniel. No, I'm just waiting to be told by a scientist saying, don't vacuum, we need it. Oh, oh mm. now I understand. Oh, you're so generous. That's what I think. Your, your generosity knows no bounds. <laughs> So, so yeah, they've got this big study going on and they found that there's all sorts of nasties in our house stuff, things like arsenic and lead, you know, really mm. nasty things. And, and these researchers are saying, you know, most of the policy tends to focus on air quality and, and environmental public health risks. But actually, we spend 90% of our time indoors. And particularly over the last couple of years, we spent most of that time in our own houses. So we should think about the dirt in our own houses and how it gets there. And so their study shows that about a third of the dust and dirt that builds up in our houses comes from us. Very nice, thinking about the fact that you and your pets are always shedding hair and skin and lovely mm. that. so daniel i think you probably should vacuum mate <laughs> yeah, yeah you're shedding your skin everywhere <laughs> <you're a> snake <laughs> bird daniel daniel skin over here in a pile oh yuck <laughs> not oh, just your I'll skin everyone no Go, sure. anyway well it's already up on gum tree yeah. so <laughs> But, but two-thirds of the, of the dirt and the dust in our houses comes from outside, okay? So it can't, blows in through doors, through windows, and comes in on our pet's feet. But it also comes in on our shoes. And it turns out that there's a lot of evidence that leaving your shoes at the door is a really smart thing to do from a scientific perspective because the bottom of your shoes can bring in lead. So lead can be in really high levels in soil after, you know, a century of industrial emissions. And depending 
depending on where you live relative to industrial hotspots, you can bring in a heap of lead into your home. I mean, a heap, obviously, I'm meaning, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny amounts, but even a tiny amount can be really dangerous. We've all heard about lead poisoning. Um, And it pays to know that lead has no smell and it's colourless, so you have no idea that it's there. Then another study found that 96% of shoes have bacteria on them where that bacteria can be traced back to poo. Mm. What was the percentage? 96%. Great. Great, great, great. And, this is one more thing to be worried about. 90% of the bacteria on our shoes gets transferred to your floors. Mm. So, you know, that, that's a lot of poo. <laughs> trace, yeah. trace poo. And, of course, we've all heard about superbugs. We've all heard about antibiotic-resistant bacteria, so bacteria that now can cause serious illnesses but is completely resistant to most antibiotics. Some of those bacteria have been found on shoes, so that's kind of risky. Other stuff I didn't know is that there's residue from asphalt in our roads that have toxins in them that can cause cancer. And, of course, when you walk across a road, microscopic amounts of that ends up on your shoes. Um, So, you know, the disadvantages of not wearing shoes in your house, I guess we'll have some people say, but I stubbed my toe. But if you've got good slippers or uggies or Uh, or Berkey. How sure. Yeah, sure. And it sort of made me think about we know that in, you know, there are many parts of the world, particularly in Asia, there are all of these social customs that are focused on preserving people's safety and, and comfort and well being, like, you know, wearing a mask just because you have a cold, not because mm. it's a global pandemic. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, maybe taking our shoes off at the door, even if we have smelly socks or socks with holes in them, maybe it's just a sign of respect because you don't know what's on the bottom of your shoes. Yeah. I've always found a welcome mat t- mm. to be very unwelcoming. Explain. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> wash your feet, take off your shoes, you filthy maggot. <laughs> That's what mine says. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got a rainbow welcome mat at our house. That sounds I think quite that's nice. very welcoming. Yeah, that is yeah. welcoming. Yeah, so yeah. a third of household dust is flex from our own putrid sinful bodies. Correct. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is all like I'm, I'm pro. I think it's good. I think it's good etiquette. Take your shoes off. Don't bring the dirt into the house. But when you drill down into the lead and the arsenic, it's all getting a bit Howard Hughes, isn't it? Like you feel like if yeah, you're worried yeah. about all these things, you drive yourself mad. Oh, look, absolutely. And that's not my that's not my aim here because, of course, there's also lots of studies saying that you've got to be exposed to dirt. You know, mm. particularly kids, you've got to expose them to dirt. But I guess maybe this is just arguing that expose your kids to dirt by having a veggie garden and going walking in your local park. But maybe just think about the fact that leaving your shoes outside the door is not a very difficult thing to do, just like wearing a mask is not a very difficult thing yeah. to do. And maybe it's just making making your house that bit um, that bit safer. All right, so, you've convinced us. Birkenstocks most, on I? order. Yeah, I'm wearing my awesome. books right now, bringing all the dirt everywhere <laughs> I, I go. I know, me too. <laughs> Well, Thanks, I'm Jane. happy to convince you guys. <laughs> I'll have to convince the rest of my family too. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> I was clearing out my handbag and I found uh, a lanyard from an event that I was emceeing during Midsummer Festival um, and it reminded me, I, I mean, I... I don't keep lanyards or anything like that. I used to get them a lot when I was uh, performing in comedy festivals or if you're just being a part of a festival. Mm. I remember, um, which are great during the festival and can get you into artist bars and all that kind of stuff, Um, or just entry to shows as well, which is the golden ticket and I love. Um, But I remember finishing 
a festival once. I was in Perth and the lanyards, they weren't personalised, so it was just a generic one that artists got. And then I was leaving, I was coming home and I gave my lanyard back to the venue manager in front of a few different artists um, and they were like, you, you don't keep all your lanyards uh-huh. from all your festival shows, like as a memento kind of a thing? I was like, no. Mm-hmm. And all of them had. Do, have you kept your lanyards? Do you keep yours, Daniel? Maybe they're in a box. Oh. Uh, yeah, you know, I think I, maybe I did for the first my first show that I mm. performed at a couple of different festivals. But then, I mean, you just get so so many of them. Yeah, lanyards. Are, I think if you're going to get a photo taken, take off your lanyard. Yeah, we know you're special. You're getting your photo taken. That's right. Mm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just, yeah. just flick it around the back. Oh, but then you go around your neck. And yeah, it's like fine. A weird choker. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess how else would you wear a lanyard? Your descendants are like, oh, it's old uncle, <laughs> rocking a choker. Who <laughs> <laughs> you? Twenty twenty two. Every red carpet. <laughs> Where's his choker? I used to. I'm a. I was a. Used to be much more of a memento keeper. Like you? used to always keep ticket stubs and everything. Oh right! From like every movie you went to, and um, wow, yeah. But and then the thing you realise about movie tickets is the ink fades like oh, a receipt. Yeah. So you can't, who knows where I went? Um, <laughs> but I don't get many lanyards. I'm not. I don't. I'm not never a VIP at anything. But I have. I DJ'd at something Melbourne Music Week. Yeah, a few years ago, and got a like it said like artist or performer or something. Mm. And I kept that. And I think even when I moved house last year, though, I was like, nah, okay. Mm. Do away with it. Junk the lanyard. But it's, you feel cool. I mean, I imagine for people who are genuine VIPs, who have so many lanyards, like Bobby, <laughs> that you chuck them out. But for little old me, who doesn't get booked for anything, it's exciting. I, yeah. I mean, I don't think a comedian is a VIP at just any fringe festivals or anything like <laughs> My, that. My uh, brother-in-law, at maybe the engagement party, uh, presented the ticket stub for the film they had on their first date. Oh, that's very cute. Oh, that is... And as it was faded, so I think he re-inked it a little bit or whatever. <laughs> wrote on it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, no, is this romantic or just a symptom of horning? <laughs> it's like, I'll just go through my box of receipts yes. and find that night. Oh, I um, Another place where I've had lanyards was working uh, at, at, for sporting organisations and then when you go into the sporting venues, you get access to different areas with the lanyard, which is great, um, mm. um, but obviously just to work. And I remember going uh, into the players' area for a cricket match and a security come up to me and he's just like, oh, excuse me, I said, oh, and I like grabbed my lanyard. I said, oh, no, I've, I've oh, got no. access. <laughs> and he said... Your phone. This is a no phone zone. You need to get off your phone. And in the players' area, no phones are allowed. Like they actually have a box and they take them away. Really? It's in regards to betting and stuff, because oh. you can take a photo, send it off. It, it's huge. So change rooms and just the players' bench area, and then there's like a square marked outside it. No phone zones. Only the team manager is allowed to have it. And I was on my phone. I don't know. Probably posting something on the Instagram. Or something. Yeah, a picture of me and Melania. VIP baby. <laughs> Would you, what about, would you slide out the plastic, throw out the lanyard or recycle the lanyard, but keep the card? Oh. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Because there's something, it's like a corporate noose. It's, yeah, it yeah. is. And you feel, a lanyard that says visitor on it, mm. that's even worse. <laughs> I wonder if, would, would you ever, I have visitor lanyards. I've actually accidentally kept visitor lanyards. Visitor ones? Yeah. Like, Are you supposed I, to it keep says visit. No, you're not. <laughs> but like you take it with you and then it's like, 
Oh, well, yeah. So do you, what do you do? Give, do you give them to like house guests? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my home. Take your lanyard. Sign in here. Well, I draped it around the neck of my first wife and <laughs> <laughs> presented that. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's it's good to rule. I mean, I've, I'm looking at trophies. I was, when Shane Warne died, I was trying to find all the things that he'd autographed of mine. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found them. And I'm like, what do I do with these? Like... I'm not yeah. a pool room kind of guy. Like, mm. what are you? Yeah, memorabilia is a funny thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And and a, as a part of all that, I saw like trophies, like that I won for sport, like yonks ago, mm. and like what? And so there was a debate about whether you just take a photograph of it and throw it away. Yeah, that's the, that's the ah. spark and joy thing, isn't it? That woman, the the. Oh you know. right, Marie Kondo, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Take a photo of the trophy and throw it away. Nah, oh, that's dumb. That, is, that would be weird if the coroner goes through your phone and is like, it's always like hundreds of photos of lanyards. <laughs> <laughs> I went into um, a TV studio and when I signed in, I didn't realise they take a photo of you. Or the, mm. I was talking to the yeah. reception and it was – the worst photo, and mm. they're like, "You're done." I go, "Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> that photo's not getting printed out or anything. Is that just for you?" And then he prints out a sticker. He oh. goes, "No, that's for the sticker. Can you just pop that on your chest?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh my god, this is hideous. I mean, this angle is terrible." And I just yeah. was looking at him. I was like, "Stop talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to look at the camera?" Yeah, and it goes on a database. Yeah. It does. does it? Well, of course it does. Oh, How yeah. did they, they printed it out. Have you seen this woman? Yeah, I know. She made away with all our languages. <laughs> Triple R. Sarah Krasnerstein is the best-selling multi-award-winning author of The Trauma Cleaner and The Believer and whose work has appeared in publications including The Monthly, Tablet Magazine, Oxford Handbooks Online, Meangin and more. Now, the writer, who holds a doctorate in criminal law, turns her attention to the country's struggling mental health system. In the new quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Sarah, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, now, in this essay, you, you blend portraiture and analysis. It's also a year after the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system delivered its findings. How on earth do you grapple with such a massive theme and re- research undertaking? Yeah, no, I th- I'd like to set myself uh, pretty torturous uh, acts <laughs> of inquiry. I think that's my mode now. But it had always... It had, this is kind of bubbling around. It took 14 months to write, but it's mm. stuff that I've been thinking about for 20 years because, you know, in my previous life of uh, being a lawyer, I would see again and again people who should have had early options for health support end up in the courts, in the prisons, and also my own lived experience of extreme um, depression and uh, anxiety, which impaired my functioning pretty much through my whole 20s. So i kind of seen up close how that stigma that we all know about um, that operates against mental illness, that, you know, it's weak or bad or negative or unstable, how that operates in study, how it operates at the workplace. And it had been a long time brewing that I wanted to write about it. So um, it wasn't easy, and it really involves looking at all of the other areas, which are also mental health. We have no 
quote-unquote mental health system that stands alone. We're talking about housing. We're talking about policing. We're talking about education, family systems. Um, yeah, so it was a bugger to write, but I'm glad <laughs> that you know, I'm now on this side of it. How, um, how come mental ill health can be so documented as prevalent and maintain a stigma? Yeah, there you go. So that's the, that was the thing that really drew me into this topic. There are, you know, the Mental Health Council recently wrote that there are few areas as formally examined uh, as mental health. We have numerous government inquiries. In the conversation, they pointed out that there were 32 um, inquire, government inquiries into the mental health system in 2018 alone. So the problem isn't that we don't know that this isn't working or how to do it better. The problem is a real failure of political will when it comes to operationalizing meaningful change. We kind of cherry pick from these reports or we ignore the findings. We've run the system into the ground and then we do it again. So that starts to look compulsive. It starts to look uh, like it's dysregulated in a way that speaks to something in, inside us that is uncomfortable with mental illness, which we knew already from that stigma. And I wanted to know if it was related to our history, if, you know, the historical experience of white settlement in this country has taught us through generations that are not really that removed from us to fear anything that could be perceived as weakness or instability or vulnerability or interdependency. And maybe that terror of um, vulnerability in ourselves is causing us to kind of be repelled by it in others. And we do it again and again and again. And culturally, what do you think is the effect of, you know, she'll be right? I think it's incredibly insidious. I think, you know, we've got, you know, toughen up. And, you know, was, I've been here since 1994. And the thing that struck me early was when somebody was really having a tough time, they'd say, you know, pretty ordinary. And I thought it was funny. Uh, but when you look closer, you know, there's a real uh, hesitancy against telling people that we're not doing okay. The best that we've gotten at this is, are you okay, Day, But um, before we can kind of sit with someone else's pain, we have to be able to normalize our own shitty days. Hmm. Um, and we don't, we don't do that well. And I think we've been taught to revile those characteristics in ourselves. And we don't, we're not even good about, you know, that level of introspection. So we, you know, have a knee-jerk reaction to it in others. I was interested to learn about the attitude towards BPD, even within psychiatry. Mm. So I use um, three case studies in the, in the essay uh, about women whose experience with um, our public institutions, while they were at their most unwell, made them sicker. And two of those concern the way we treat borderline personality disorder. Um, it's uh, the, the, the law on borderline personality disorder changed halfway through 2020. It was treated like differently to any other mental disorder or um, uh, illness until that recently. We learned it in law school that it didn't count for mitigation and sentencing, that these people with this diagnosis were bad, not mad was how we remembered it for the exams. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's deeply distressing and unjust, but it was interesting to see how that stigma really kind of seemed to coalesce legitimately in the public mind around that particular diagnosis. 
And I, a doctor had said to me that, you know, where, where one, once we were allowed to say these awful things about HIV patients or schizophrenia patients, and now no one would dream of saying any of those things, but it, it's acceptable in relation to borderline personality disorder. We, it's okay to think of these people as being manipulative or bad when they're, when they're unwell. They're significantly impaired in a way that intellectual disability or autism spectrum disorders can be significantly impairing. And I wanted to see how that stigma was operating, uh, even in therapeutic settings, and why people kind of had absolved themselves of looking again and really treating these people with uh, care and compassion. Uh, you mentioned in the essay that the Australian government has always had a bit of a love affair with royal commissions and they seem to be more about optics than anything else. If, yeah. if royal commissions and in, in inquiries have very little bearing on the state of things, what do you think would well, so the point about the Royal Commissions was that, you know, I mean, look at Aboriginal deaths in custody, look at intimate partner homicide, and, you know, look at mental illness. Like, we have these, you know, very public, very costly, kind of self-congratulatory ways of having, being seen to address the problem, and then we're right back where we started in many respects. So I think we have to really confront the fact that there is an operating gap between how we like to think about ourselves and how we are as a society. And that gap's been with us since the beginning of white settlement. And so, you know, when we look at systems change, is another thing I discussed in the essay, which is kind of a very fancy way of saying that you can't just superimpose a paradigm shift on top of ways of interacting and ways of running a society that have run it into, a gra into the ground. Obviously, we need to inject much more funding into our mental health services. Obviously, those services need to operate more collaboratively. But unless we have a relationship change and unless we have a personal change, none of that is going to last. It's not sustainable. So it, I try to make the point that before we can kind of act compassionately or even adequately in this, in this arena, we need to normalize our own discomfort with our own vulnerability. Mental illness is so prevalent, you know, it has a prevalence that's similar to COVID and to the common cold. And there's no stigma that attaches to any of those things. You don't feel bad telling people when you have either of those things. But for some reason, we feel like we're a burden or we're, you know, going to discredit ourselves if we're honest about when we're having a bad head day or month or year. And I think unless, before we can make that kind of radical choice in our social context to normalize our own unwellness, then we can't really have the relationships that we need. We can't really follow up on the expectations of our elected officials or hold corporations to account or any of the services or sector changes further down the line, it starts much closer to home. Looking at society's most vulnerable, what do you think is the relationship between mental illness, health and just dignity? Oh, well, I mean, it's fundamental, isn't it? Um, we know that that stigma, you know, exacerbates mental illness that is already, you know, that has already shown itself for genetic reasons, but also creates mental illness. And those effects are compounded for already marginalized groups across society. Um, those who are already marginalized for reasons of race or gender or sexuality or ethnicity or disability or geography, none of those characteristics have any kind of moral weight. It's a relationship uh, to that the stigmatizing people, the stigmatizing groups perpetuate. 
to maintain group hierarchies. So this is very much about power. It's very much about hierarchy. It has nothing to do with the moral quality of any of these stigmatized uh, characteristics. And yet groups that are already marginalized are bearing the weight of this. Um, and that's why we see the suicide statistics that we see in indigenous populations, in the LGBTQI plus populations. Um, and it's unacceptable. And it does, as you say, go straight to the heart of human dignity um, in a way that is completely unjustified. What about the credibility of psychiatry? Is that sometimes not necessarily rock solid? I mean, I know you you invoke the wisdom of uh, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud um, oh. very poetically, who can, you know, fall out of favour or sometimes diagnostics come in and then they're jettisoned. Is that just like, uh, you know, any any other health element in our world or is it does mental oh. health in particular suffer from this? Well, no, I mean, psychiatry, psychology, these are sciences. It's not an anecdotal thing. I mean, I use it poetically at times, but, you know, when you see these clinicians, they're scientists and doctors, and so, no, I don't think it's a question of, um, you know, being unreliable or falling out of favor. That's demonstrated science. Um, But, you know, having said that, there's a range of different therapeutic options, and you have to find the best fit for you. And, you know, we're not currently um, supporting a system that allows people the latitude to do that for reasons of access and um, access and cost. Uh, so you'd be lucky to find, you know, often a psychiatrist or psychologist that could see you uh, and that you could kind of make work uh, maybe with the money. But, um, you know, so we don't have that choice where you're going to have an, you're going to be assisted in finding kind of the stream of therapy that's going to work for you that's that's not where we're at yet. Mm. Well, all these issues and more explored in Not Waving Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. It's the new quarterly essay out, as always, by Black Ink, and we've been speaking with author Sarah Krasenstein. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. My goodness. I'm going to give you an official one. Okay. Jelvin Hickey's stand-up show, What a Surprise, last year won the Melbourne Comedy Festival Award for Most Outstanding Show, the comedian having previously been nominated for Things Are Going Well, which in 2019 took home the coveted Comedian's Choice Piece of Wood Award. After appearances on Have You Been Paying Attention, The Project, Usually We Have a Problem, and starring in two seasons of Metrosexual, uh, Jez's new show, Now I've Got a Boat, is on at the Art Centre, this comedy festival, to tell us about it. The acclaimed actor and former breakfaster joins us now, Geraldine Hickey. It's oh, me! <laughs> what a treat. It is. That that was really nice. It's nice to, um, you know, get the full Daniel Burt intro. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. right. lot of work goes into that and mm. I appreciate well, it. Thank uh, you. How how's it been? I mean, how's this new show been put together without having the daily radio uh, anchor? Oh, mate. It's, it's been different. Right. <laughs> it has been different. And, it, you know, there are moments uh, where I kind of go, I don't know how to, how to do this anymore. Mm. Um, so because it really was being able to do radio and, you know, tell my cooked stories in the morning <laughs> really was a great way to develop material. Um, and then, you know, I didn't get to do that. So I just kind of had to, I don't know, think about things for, for a bit. Um, and, you know, I just talked to people a bit more. But I think for this show, I was, 
you know, just really lucky because I escaped that last lockdown mm. uh, and just I got to go out into the world and do things and experience yeah. things and then, you know, come back and then – and also because I got to work, so I got to, you know, get on stage and go – well, this is what I did. Yeah. And, mm. How do you, how do you navigate? Do you reckon the uh, the relatable jazz with like the uber successful? I've got a boat and a horse and all mm. that sort of gear. Yeah. Next year's show will be. <laughs> of course, we've got horses. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the you know that's the challenge. It's, it's like I still. I just I think you have to be a bit silly about it, mm. and I just you know I kind of see myself as very much an upper middle bogan. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd kind of keep it at, at that vibe. It's yeah. you know yeah I've got a boat. <laughs> I've got a yeah. boat. Yeah. What kind of boat? It's just a tinny. It's just a tinny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the art center, what a venue. I know, right? You know, you know it was like 2019. I was upstairs at the Imperial. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Like in a pub, like three years ago, and now I'm in. I'm in the art centre and I'm still not coping with it. Yeah. Does it make you a bit um, self-conscious that it's, you know, it's a fancy venue? Do you have to tone anything down? No, I'm an upper middle bogan. Mo- I belong yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I technically, like being in that venue, it, it, you know, when I found out I was going to be there, it kind of made me think about, well, how do I, you know, utilise that mm. to the full advantage? So... Um, there's a bit more like in the show there's um I don't have a screen this year last few years I've you know used stuff on the on the bed but I don't have that this year um <clears throat> just wanted to see how we could go without doing it um but has there's some there's the th- theatrics at the end oh right. pyrotechnics <laughs> Maybe bring the boat out. I don't, I don't have yeah that that much money, but um, just bubbles and and things. Is it this room is quite uh, wide, isn't it? Um, are you playing? So to... yeah, it's like an amphitheater mm. type thing. So oh, it's cool. me, no stage, me on the ground, and everyone <sighs> up around. What's that which, like? Oh, that's my favourite. It's my favourite because everyone's like in in front of you, sort of thing, and you don't have to look down on anybody. And it's just like it's I don't know. I think you're kind of more connected to the audience, and and so it's, yeah, it's nice. And yeah. I'm excited about that. I do miss uh, you know you're at the gala the other night, which I wasn't intended. So I was like, oh, I miss hearing about the lead up, hearing how it went, yeah. and, you know. Mm. So can you tell? And that's me? the other thing. Yeah, the gala, the lead up was I. Um, I was initially supposed to do the the next week's gala, the All Star opening night All Stars, and then so a few days before, um, got bumped up for whatever reason, and I was like, and they go, can you do the gala? I was like, oh yeah. So I was just I'm, honestly like a Wednesday during the day, uh, felt drastically underprepared. Mm. <laughs> was just like, and all it was, was I hadn't got a new outfit. Oh, is that it? And I was just like, that's that's why I'm so – because that's part of the lead. It was like finding out, oh, what am I going to wear for the gala? I remember yeah. that chat last year. Yeah. Different coloured pants. Yeah. And then being like, oh, I'll wear this and, you know, just feeling – and then – but this year I didn't have time to, to go shopping. I still – I went out to some shops during the day. And then I just – is it the AA prayer where they – it's like <laughs> grant me the serenity to – Oh, yeah. To accept the things that, that cannot, that cannot change. change. Yeah. <laughs> I had that – I had that I'm going through my head. Yeah. <laughs> and I, so it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, okay, just, you know, get out there and have, have a nice time. You, you know, 
you've got a, a the outfit was great. I was just oh, I've seen it a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you miss the debriefing after shows on air, or is it what role did that play even just? Oh yeah, that was it. And debriefing about all the little gigs and then all the, you know, bits and pieces and the and the exciting new work opportunities mm. and you know that kind of. But I've got mates, don't you? Yeah, of course, I know, yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> You've got people to talk to. I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your life of loneliness? <laughs> <laughs> With your outfits, like obviously when you're on TV, you want to put in an effort and everything. You're at mm. the art center now. Do you have a different outfit for every night, or do you? Yeah, I have. Or you stick with one I love that this through. is now a fashion show. <laughs> <laughs> I've got. Um, I have all my, you know, a bunch of different shirts, and I just try to. Um, rotate yeah, I rotate the shirts, mm. and I know this. There's other people, like I know Will Anderson. He has his, you know, uniform yeah. essentially that he, you know, it's his black shirt and his black pants, or, and that's and he wears that every night, and it's kind of and he said he likes, you know, because he puts his. His uniform went on to go out to work kind of thing, whereas I'm like, oh, I can't. Oh, I want to wear so People will think oh, I don't wash my clothes, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it works if, you're, if, if it's a black shirt because you've maybe got, you know, five different black shirts, but I, you know. I'll mix it up. Yeah, mix it up. Is there, a, is there a bit in this show that you have a hunch is like a signature jazz, like <laughs> that you're just secretly very proud of? Uh, yeah, there's a few bits in there for sure. There's, because there was bits in it and the bit that I did for the gala was like one of the last bits that I'd written for the show and it's about me getting this boat um, and us not knowing how to use the boat. (laughs) Um, But it was, and that was the hardest thing to write. So it's the the one that I'm most proud of because it took such a long time to Mm. find the funny in this in this story like because you know when kath and i first got the boat we we just we can't start it <laughs> like we don't know how to start it and i'm sure once you know we'll get used to it but like every time we've taken it like three times and every single time we've had to get it started by a man um <laughs> and it's just this like the first time we took it out i was you know i was so embarrassed about the whole ordeal, like having to get like there was a guy that helped us, who he was he's so lovely, and he watched me like backing the trailer in, which took a while, and then he watched Kath try to start the boat, and he could tell that he, like he he knew he could help, but he was just that, I don't I don't want to be the guy to go yeah. for you guys, and he, yeah. so he held back for ages and ages, and then he tentatively was like, do you guys do you guys need a hand, and I was been all adamant and go no <laughs> and then but before I, I Kath at the exact same time was in the boat going yes please oh, yeah. <laughs> um well. so you know she's in the boat and you know he starts and he's lovely we now have his name saved in our phone as Paul Boat um <laughs> so he's like yeah call me anytime you run into problems and we're like well yeah Expect a call next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask about you. The so you're one of the few Melbournians who missed what a surprise. You can watch it. It's, yeah. yeah, April one it comes out um, on on Paramount Plus, uh, which is yeah, it's exciting and it's kind of like, oh, which do I promote more? Come see me live. Yeah. Or, <laughs> but what a what a double feature. You know, you can come see my show like at six o'clock and then get home. <laughs> Pop the telly on and 
watch last year's show. What a bonus. Five o'clock even better. It's a matinee, five o'clock. Oh, it's Sundays at five o'clock. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's mm. love it. That's my favourite. <laughs> Where would you, what would your night, if you were going to go see Now I've Got a Boat, mm. uh, March 31 to April 24, what is, are there... What would you do with the night? Would you loiter at the art centre? Is there a bar nearby? How, Ooh, what's the yeah. best? Way? Well, you take a weekend, um, <laughs> so you can do, you know so you can fit it all in because you know having a drink after a show is nice. You know what you can do? Zoe Coombs, Ma, Dave is on the same room after me, oh, so just, right. just stay there. Yeah, do that, yeah. and because that'll give you time. You can go out in the foyer, have a couple of drinks, go back in. Yeah. That's that's the dream. That's what you want. Like two shows in the same venue. Um, yeah. Otherwise. Uh, yeah, you've got to fit in dinner somewhere, mm. but also have dinner late. Go to the supper club or something, you know. Oh. Just all to, you know, get dumplings at 11 o'clock. But, yeah, go see, definitely go see at least two shows a night and um, have a drink in between. And then, yeah, just everyone, oh, my, it's so exciting. It is it. exciting. And then, like, late shows, oh, they're the fun shows. Oh, comedy, comedy up, up late? Comedy up late you is happening. That? Yeah. But it's not really comedy up late because it's, like, just on a month. I think one's at 9 o'clock. But, like, the, the there's, like, the late shows at um at Max at the Festival Club at Max Watts, they're always, yeah, they're heaps of fun. They're really good. Because I can stay out late like, now. Well, that's oh, the other yeah. thing. 11 o'clock, absolutely Oh, not. my God. <laughs> like, but he's at the gala the other night. You know, there's always, you know, they have drinks afterwards. And I've always, I've, I'll go to the drinks but stay for like 20 minutes. We're like, guys, I've got to, you know, get up get up early. And this year I'm like, I'll probably, I'll go. But, you know, I'm, I don't need to stay out. I'm, you know, I'm pretty... Mm. I'm old and sensible. But you were just always... I stayed there all night. Yeah, exactly. I was little closing. <laughs> can I ask about... Uh, this show has a director. Mm-hmm. What, what's, can you share a Rachel moment? Davis mm. is... Um, yeah, I wouldn't have won any awards without her. Uh, so Rachel, she adds... Um, yeah, structure to the show. So we've worked together for the last few years, um, since like 2018... And, yeah, we just talk a lot. And so she will ask things like, well, why why did you – what's good about getting – why did you get the boat and how does it make you feel? And kind of just putting all things together and making sense of it all. So, you know, and we always ask, you know, the question that we ask ourselves is how do we want the audience to feel when they leave? So for things are going well, it's like I just want the audience to feel good and be like – oh, that's really great that I've got this and, you know, makes you'd be appreciative. Um, and this year's show, it's um, I want the audience to feel, leave with a, a sense of triumph. Right. Mm. Mm. Isn't it exactly. interesting mm. having, you've, you know, Rachel Davis is like obviously a jazz whisperer <laughs> and then you're at the, how much when you tip over a certain level, how much easier is life? Yeah, mate, it's great. You get isn't it like, but isn't it like, but isn't it like, you know how it's expensive to be poor? Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's it's incredible how, yeah. And not just, you know, those little things, but also, um, you know, because I've got management now and I was, you know, independent and self-produced for so many yeah. years. And so having someone to write a media release for mm. me and having someone else to fill in the forms, like I don't have to think about, oh, I've got to get the photo, oh, I've got to do the, a poster, and oh, I've got to, oh, I have to fill out the registration form and mm. how, and then, and also paying for all of that. 
you know, when you're self produced you have to pay for everything up yeah. front. Yeah. And then, you know, and you hope that you sell enough tickets to, you know, make that money back. But for, you know, ten years it was just like, Oh, well there's a thousand dollars gone for yeah. it. and that's and it's a month's work. Like now this this, you know, comedy festival is like my bread and butter. So that's you know, makes up most of my income for the year. Whereas ten, you know, years ago it was just like it's, I'm working the same amount, mm. <laughs> if not mm. more, and making no no money from it. You know, yeah. losing money. So it's pretty nice. Overnight yeah, success, cool. Geraldine. <laughs> um, you said it was a nice idea to see two shows in one night. Yeah. There's there are. Oh some... yes, you know what you could do. <laughs> you could see me. Um, do you have, do you want me to read all of this out? No. Mm. Well, you you well did you write did it? Or did did, Rachel, did did your management write it? <laughs> I thought you wrote it. Geraldine Hickey, Wednesday, April 6th at Art Centre, Melbourne. This is for you can win one double pass. Oh, okay. And, yeah. To and come see my show. And then also. No, not that one. Not that one. Oh, no. You did that earlier. Where is it? There's two shows. One for Lloyd Langford. Oh. Mm. We named, we love Lloyd so much we named our dog after him. Oh. <laughs> I said, I said that the other night. Oh, that's like, not true, is it? No, 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 no. 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 Like Lloyd was already <laughs> yeah, Lloyd exactly. and Lloyd was already Lloyd. Yeah. Because um, Lloyd was like, what, you've, you've had him for 30 years. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so Wednesday, April 6th, here we go, double passes for our shows. Uh, Lloyd's show is Dilf. Uh, Lloyd is um, Anne Edmonds' partner and they both have a baby now, beautiful baby Gwen. Um, and so here, let me tell you about Lloyd's show. Lloyd, I know you've got to go to the news, whatever. No. Lloyd Langford brings his new show, Dilf, to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Lloyd hasn't been able to see his family in Wales for over two years, so he's decided to start a new one. He's dealt with an attack by the Daily Mail, Wasps, and Edmonds, Australia's worst courier company, and the birth of his new child. A brand new hour of stand-up, co- stand-up comedy from the finest Welsh comedian currently working in Australia. And also there's a double ticket for mine, double pass for my Same show. Same night. Same night. Back to back. April, yeah, get get online. Yeah, it's um, all happening. At the, at the thing. Let's go to the news. Yeah, let's do it then. Okay, comedyfestival.com.au. Jess's show, now I've got a vote, March 31, April 24. If you want to catch the previous show, uh, it's streaming on Paramount Plus, April 1. April 1, what a surprise. April 1, Paramount Plus. Uh, cheap tickets for opening weekend for Now I've Got a Boat. Happening from March 31. Beautiful. It's all happening. Thanks for dropping in. Thank you. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the Triple R website.